When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code HANGUP. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of June 9th, 2014. It's a week of very energetic highs, is it not, Stefan? It was a good high. Hello. It was, a, it was Josh's second high. There was a first high, but there was a microphone malfunction, a wasted high. On this week's show. Yeah, sort of like Maureen Dad. Uh, we'll talk about LeBron James's big performance. I think he needed, I, I think he had more edibles before game two. 35, <laughs> 35 points worth of edibles. Uh, and how the sports media and the rest of the world reacted to his leg cramps in game one. We'll also discuss California Chrome's failed bid to become the first Triple Crown winner in 36 years. And the horse's owner's complaints that the Belmont was rigged and that the other horses were cowards and cheaters. I like to say that the other horses were cowards and cheaters. I think that just makes the whole thing more exciting. We're going to talk about, about anthropomorphization. And if you watch the gist, if you watch the gist, that's pretty incredible. If you listen <laughs> to the gist, you'll know where I'm coming from. What Stefan is implying is as bad as he pronounces things on a daily basis, I pronounce them much worse. <laughs> I've got these huge horse teeth working against me. A five-minute introduction to today's show. Uh, we'll be joined by Slade's David Hagland to discuss his profile of Delonte West and whether West is out of the NBA due to the stigma against mental illness in professional sports. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll look at the French Open and the rivalry between Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic. Joining me from Washington, D.C., it's a man who says hi with the average amount of enthusiasm. It's Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic and the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Hi. And with Stefan, 
No, wait, not with Stefan. That was from last week. That was last week. He's all by himself. It's Mike Pasca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Jest with Mike Pasca. Is it going to get old at any point to say that Mike Pasca is the host of The Jest with Mike Pasca? I don't know. Yeah, when, Char- when, when Charles Grodin takes over. <laughs> is that like when uh, whoever is doing Prince Valiant now, it's still... It is whoever actually Charles hell. Grodin. <laughs> it is? <laughs> Now I can't think of who did Prince Valiant. It'll be fun for Hal the... Hal something? Those yeah. guys are always named Hal. They are. It'll be fun for the podcast listener to know something that I don't. It's probably yeah. Hal. Um, this is a really crowded week for potential topics. We are not talking about the Stanley Cup Finals, the O'Bannon case that's starting this week, the North Carolina academic scandal, the World Cup... Of soccer. Of soccer is starting on Thursday. Um, we could have done a whole the Padres, extra show. The Padres won a couple games this week. <laughs> the Padres continue unabated through their march through Major League Baseball mediocrity. <laughs> um, but we're going to do some hang-up extra podcast during the World Cup. We're going to do something a little different. Um, the Soccer Magazine, The Howler, they do great work in the audio and textual formats. They'll be providing the content. We'll be putting it in our feed. If you don't subscribe to the Hang Up and Listen podcast feed, in your favorite podcast program, you'll be missing out, but we'll be doing one of those a week, and it will be a really good listen for all of you World Cup watchers. Also, we're going to do a World Cup bracket predictor challenge for hang-up listeners, just like March Madness, except it has nothing to do with basketball, and it's not in March. It's June and July Madness. Uh, make your picks. We'll put the link on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash listen. We'll give a prize to whoever has the most points, whoever ESPN assigns points to these things, pick who's going to win the groups, who's going to win the tournament. Best of luck to all of you. Slate Plus is also something that you should subscribe to. You should become a member. Um, you can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. We're talking about uh, David Haglund's great Delonte West story this week, and there are a bunch of bonus features for Slate Plus members. You can listen to Haglund, read the story. I did a short interview about the process of working with David on that piece. And there's, um, you know, the recommendations engine that I've mentioned a bunch of times where you can uh, get the index of our afterballs. Uh, you can get all that stuff. Slate.com slash hang up plus. I like it when, when people like editors say, I had the pleasure of working with David on that piece. You uh-huh. edited the piece, Josh. It's sort of like saying I went to Cambridge. I went to New Haven. Where'd you go to college, Josh? Josh went to college. <laughs> Josh went to Providence. I didn't You're go to Providence. No I, and they I, work together. It's like when a winger talks about a center. He loves working <laughs> with Gretzky. Same thing. All right, I wasn't, let's get to the topics. I wasn't trying to elide the fact that I had edited the piece. I edited the piece. Say Mo- it. Mofos. I edited the piece. Uh, in game one of the NBA Finals, the air conditioning broke in San Antonio's AT&T Center, which I'm guessing made the corporate sponsor regret the fact that it was associated with catastrophically busted electronics. Those are the breaks, AT&T. Uh, the Heat's LeBron James broke down along with the AC, cramping up in the sweltering conditions, having to be carried off the court after making a layup in the fourth quarter. The Heat lost. LeBron criticized. He then said this in an interview with ESPN's Michael Wilbon. You unplug from pretty much all media when the playoffs start, and that's been your way now for a few years. So are you even aware of the mocking that's going on right now of you. You know, we, we don't criticize anymore. Right. We go straight to ridicule and mocking. That's what it's Yeah, yeah. I mean, for, for me, I, I mean, I, I'm aware of it, but I don't, I don't see it. I, don't, I try not to get involved in it. I'm aware of it because I know, I know it's me. And I know I'm the, easier, I'm the easiest target that we have in sports. So I'm aware of it. You really believe that, the easiest target in sports? Yeah, I believe it. And then in game two, the easiest target in sports, scored 35 points, grabbed 10 rebounds, leading Miami to a 98-96 win and ensuring that the Heat won for the 13th time in a row following a playoff loss. Uh, Stefan Fatsos, what did you think of how LeBron's cramps were digested in the sports media and among sports fans? Apparently not very well. It's hard to tell, though. You know, you, you, we, we focus on the Skip Bayless idiots and the tweeting 18-year-olds. But in reality, does the vast majority of fans really believe that when an athlete is afflicted with an unpreventable, at least at the moment, uncontrollable reaction to exertion, strain, stress, injury, that it's deliberate, that they're not trying? I mean, this is mystifying. I mean, it's hot take land for Bayless and people like him. For the rest of us, it'd be nice to at least think once in a while that the volume of intelligent reaction, and there was a lot of intelligent reaction after the criticism to this, explanations about how cramping work, um, possible theories for why 
LeBron may may be suspect to cramps. The overall pain and and debilitating nature of this injury, you know, but it's still drowned out by the Skip Ellis's and Jonathan Martin, who we're supposed to feel sorry for, I guess, who's told LeBron to drink some Gatorade. I hate it, man. It makes me hate sports media because I, you can't even think about interesting nuances of conversation when there's just so much dumbness going on. It's like uh, as it ever I don't was, even... Mike. As it ever was, though. I mean, not are really. we shocked I mean, on, by the dumbness on this on this show? At least sometimes we could, you know, delve into angles. This is taking that delving away. It's like I don't even like all the programming on MSNBC, but you know. I, as a counterpoint to just the insane lies of Fox, I guess it's sort of necessary. So this is what sports media has become, just such stupid stuff that's uh, said over and over again. You know, ESPN, the actual broadcast is great. Doris Burke does a great job. Jackson's there too now, and it's uh, and Breen and uh, Van Gundy. Mark Jackson did criticize LeBron, saying he should have found a way to play that last few minutes, didn't he? Did he say that? I, I don't know. I think that everyone thinks that everyone – there's not one sensible person who thinks this is anything other than when hardworking athletes who had played 33 minutes, which is, I think, other than Tony Parker, the most in the game at that point. He's in 90-degree heat. Yeah, 90 degree heat where we, for human beings, are like, this is a heat advisory. Take it easy. These guys are playing the most intense sport. It, it just bothers me that you even have to waste any time or mental energy. But the point of bringing up the ABC ESPN broadcast is, yeah, the broadcast got it right. But you watch SportsCenter, they laugh and they play and they put on hashtags and they, they have all of their debate programming where they're supposedly debating it. But even on SportsCenter, you know, they're perpetuating this notion that, oh, maybe it has to do with a moral failing and it couldn't be more stupid. Well, I was going to make the same point as Stefan is that in an age when anyone can express an opinion and that opinion can be heard very widely, we need to redefine what we mean by criticism because anything that any human being does that's broadcast on television, they're going to be criticized for it. And I think LeBron is right that he's criticized more than most. But I don't think that LeBron was actually criticized by anyone that we need to listen to. And so it's sort of like... If you imagine the tides going in and out, when, you know, LeBron is playing well, the like rocky depths of stupidity are covered by a nice, and I'm using like a nice water reference. The, I'm the, the water, you know, it hydrates, the, it covers the rocks, all the stupidity is covered. But then when something happens to LeBron, when he says something, when he dares to like only score seven points, when his body cramps up, then the tides, you know, the water recedes. And the rocky depths, the shoals of stupidity are exposed. But we, we need not have our ships crash against those, those rocks. I mean, when people say stupid stuff on Twitter, when Skip Bayless says that LeBron is LeCramp and, you know, he, as you said, Mike, had some sort of moral failing that uh, required his, his body to lock up. We don't need to pay attention to that. And I don't think we need to even say that LeBron was criticized, do we? Do we need no, to character no, I, do we need to characterize it as you know him responding to uh you know la the lashing out of the public no i I don't think that that that's a fine lens but not to apply to this situation I think that's more like during the Super Bowl they run a commercial with a bunch of different languages what were they singing the national anthem I forgot what it was and then Deadspin does this roundup of all the people who are racist or xenophobic or whatever on Twitter not that th there's not some value to seeing that that exists I think in that point if we we're like oh there was some criticism or oh it was a controversial ad that would be wrong the vast majority of people wouldn't have that opinion and or even if it wasn't even if it's something where maybe an uninformed majority would have a stupid opinion you really can ignore it but i think the lebron thing saying oh you don't even have to worry about the cramps it's more like someone with an elite opinion dismissing you know a misperception about a medicaid or a government program right i think that at some point the dumb misperception is so widespread that it gets in hey luckily basketball all that matters is who puts the ball in the basket more adjusted for three points and foul shooting but uh but so luckily that's the good thing about sports but the discussion about sports is not a small minority and this is not something that people don't say i mean when scott simon was introducing his sports program he made a lebron is cramping crack and you're better than that scott simon this is human nature mike 
and to to be shocked or outraged that I'm not shocked. It just pisses it's disappointing. Me off. Well, you know, it pissed off J.D. Salinger too. What did he write in the Catcher in the Rye? You could about spend a million years and you could never erase all the fuck yous that are scribbled on the walls. That's right. Now I'm going to date a 14 year old. <laughs> I mean, so so the to be surprised by any of this is to I think sort of take the wrong approach. I mean, I'm I'm kind of with Josh here, and I think that the virtue of what's happened in sports media in the last decade is that there is so much more intelligent thought out there. Um, There is so much more comprehensive assessment of idiotic situations like these. So instead of just engaging in a hot take of did LeBron wimp out or didn't he, we have people writing thoughtful reported stories about the science of cramping. There's a great piece on ESPN by Tom Haberstraw about the science of cramping. He found a guy who's on the heat who played in the NBDL who had suffered debilitating cramps on a regular basis and who received medical and scientific treatment for it. Salted Gatorade. More salt was the answer. Um, More salt. And probably LeBron was not doing the right thing, which raises legitimate questions that we really can't answer about what the training staff of the Miami Heat is doing to treat him. Why wasn't he eating a pickle on the bench? Pickles. Damn it. I'll I'll tell you another. More odds. I'll defend my displeasure. The other thing it does is it hijacks my rooting interest. I should be rooting for the Spurs. The Spurs (laughs) have all these things that are really quite attractive. I love Popovich. I don't love Duncan, but I I love Mano Ginobili's hair. I got to get behind guys with that baldness pattern iniesta i've just I, I should be loving the spurs but man i feel like i gotta love i feel like i gotta root for the heat Mike, you accomplished so much you, you accomplished so much right there you transitioned to the spurs and you got a world cup reference you know, that was fantastic that was fantastic but mike you're way late on this i've been rooting for the heat since 2010 for precisely this reason you have to get behind the heat because all the dumb people are against the heat <laughs> they, they've hijacked your fandom wouldn't you rather root for but lebron you know, is so great and fun higher on Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Wouldn't you be a self-actualized rooter instead of just a, you know, a basic needs and shelter clothing anti-dumb people rooter? But there's a lot to be said for being a shelter and clothing people type rooter. It raises your bile. It gets you more passionate about the game. Yeah, but, but if you but get too much bile, breath, then you're delayed. But in the same just... breath as you, in the same breath, and by the same breath, I mean like six different <laughs> breaths apart, six segments apart. You say the great thing about sports is all the intellectual discourse, and it's great to be a rooter based on bile and the humors of your blood. But LeBron was so great in that game too. Leeches, let's, you know what? That's what that they needed. Should have had a pickle. They didn't have. Any, they needed leeches, Pesca, because they had a lot of bile. Um, the Spurs. Back to the Spurs. I feel like they're just a really good opponent for Mm. anyone, for the Heat in particular. For the NBA. For the NBA. Because they're kind of set up as the ideal for the league in terms of management, in terms of coaching, in terms of how they move the ball. It's, It's like in a video game where you set it up on the hardest difficulty level. They do everything right and you have to be perfect to defeat them. And I think that's why, um, they're not as good just as a protagonist. People have long characterized them as boring, although I think that's changed over the last couple of years when there's been more of an appreciation of the fact that they've been doing it for so long and that Duncan, Ginobili, and Parker continue to be so great. But they're they're just better as a foil, I think, than as the hero of the tale. They've been cast as boring because of Tim Duncan's personality. I mean, not because of the style of basketball they play or because of their success. Um, Their cast is boring because there's no narrative drama around the protagonist, around the star of of this team. LeBron, obviously. Carmelo, crazy. Well, they also won right in the beginning of Duncan's career. So there's not the kind of... Again, stupid, will he win? Where yeah. is he a loser? Like, we already yeah. knew that Carl Duncan was Malone, a winner right. from day one. Yeah, they seem more like a force of nature. To beat them is like to beat the climate as opposed to beat the warring tribe, right? And if comedy, if uh, tragedy plus time equals comedy, boring plus time equals consistency. <laughs> and consistency is a virtue instead of boring, which is an insult, but it's not the most exciting version. No, it's not. They're sort of like the Washington Generals, except that they win all the time <laughs> instead of nothing losing like the time. Washington. Yes, they are. They're boring. They're out there to be the opponent. And they're not the, oh, you know, they're not throwing confetti in your face the way that other NBA stars might because of their own baggage, because of their own history, because of their own scripted narratives. 
Mark Jackson uh, kind of made a good point by saying that Tim Duncan doesn't talk to Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili when they first start out. And he's just like, you know, a respected veteran who, you know, they need to earn his respect. Then Kobe Bryant doesn't talk to Smush Parker and he's a huge raging asshole. Now, I think it kind of makes sense because Kobe Bryant is a huge raging asshole. <laughs> right. That's one thing. That's that one problem. That's, it, is, it does complicate it a little bit. But um, there are these perceptions that we have of people, whether they're LeBron James or whether it's uh, Kobe Bryant or Tim Duncan, and they do tend to stick. And I think that, like we were saying with Tim Duncan, it's kind of stuck where he's like a winner, he's consistent, he's stolid, he's boring. That was from day one that he was in the NBA. Yeah. Can we move to the Heat for a second? Go for it. All right. Dwayne Wade's not that great a player, so this whole thing about, you know... (laughs) What? (laughs) Excuse me? Dwayne Wade is no longer that great a player. No longer, thank you. Okay. All right. Well, he's still pretty 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 good. I don't know. He's he doesn't really ever seem to me to be in the top five players on the court. He could do some things, but Did I you just see don't. how he reacted. Stephen, Stephen, no. The good thing is that with all the dumb commentary out there, there's just a lot of intelligent angles. So just let Mike say I'm that. Sorry, yeah. Dwayne Wade's not a good player. No, it's okay. I think Dwayne Wade's fine. He's a fine <laughs> player. He's not that good a player anymore. The, the whole thing was this huge wind up to talk about. How amazing Chris Bosh is. Chris Bosh is awesome. Chris Bosh could go to the outside. Chris Bosh is intense. Chris Bosh gets fouled and hits free throws. I really like Chris Bosh. All right, that's it. It does seem odd that every time in the last two minutes of a close game, the Heat's offense runs this exact same play with Chris Bosh standing On the right in way. the corner, making or missing a three-pointer to determine whether they win the game. Okay. And that doesn't – I mean, I guess he shoots threes occasionally – throughout the rest of the game. But it's always in that same corner, always at the end of the game, always somebody driving in, usually LeBron, drawing a double team, Chris Bosh open. It's it's a strange thing. It's a strange thing because it's not the, like, number one best option option for the Heat, but it seems like the one that's always available to them at that last moment. When you're open, there's a reason that you're open, as they say sometimes. You take what the other team gives you. Mm -hmm. Hot take. Dwayne Wade's win share this year because you can't go by his so his win shares per 48 was 0.149 do you want to i'm not going to count deandre liggins but do you want to uh, guess where that was on the heat sixth that was fifth yes above james jones and greg Oden. but did you see how he reacted to manager nobly's swing that didn't come within 10 inches of his face classic <laughs> all-star caliber i mean no I, i'm gonna all-star give you flop. i'm gonna give you the uh intangibles all-star flop so this is gonna be a great nba finals where we might uh talk about it again great series or it'll end in five or it'll end in five seems unlikely our sponsor this week is squarespace the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website how's andrea's website going mike it's going well. Um, I think she's got most of the insane clown posse's uh, <laughs> oeuvre up until the last two albums. She's incorporating that. She's an ICP website designer. This you is Mike's that, right? uh, producer of The Gist with Mike Pesca. Has her ICP website. Yeah. Uh, if you wanted to create a hot sports takes website, that would be terrible. But uh, you, could, you could do it. Or you could make a much better website. Squarespace is deserving of a far superior, the best sports website in existence. It's simple and easy. It's beautiful design. Drag and drop content. You get 24-7 support, live chat, and email. It's located in New York City and Dublin. And plans start at $8 a month and include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. You can start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace to create your insane clown posse slash in defense of LeBron James website. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Make sure to use the offer code HANGUP to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the Hang Up and Listen podcast experience. We thank Squarespace for their support of Hang Up and Listen. Squarespace, a better web, starts with your website. What number gathering of the Juggalos do you think they're up to? Oh, I would say uh, 14. Yeah, 15. The 15th gathering. I was pretty close. Unbelievable. That's because Josh has been to 13 of them. (laughs) We're we're plus or minus one on guesses of Mike uh, Pesca (laughs) trivia questions. On Saturday evening in New York, California Chrome went into the starting gate. Can I do the intro for this instead? You can fill in. Here we go. 
I've got a horse in fourth on this big race course, and the triple crown goes unclaimed, of course. Affirmed. Affirmed. Much better than California Chrome. And the owner of California Chrome goes home alone. What what didn't I uh, get to that you need to? The guy's name is Steve Coburn. Mm-hmm. Uh, before the race, uh, they were try- well. They were trying to become the first in 36 years to win the Triple Crown, California Chrome, and his uh, co-owners, first Steve Kerr, affirmed, right. Steve Coburn, and the other guy. Coburn said, "We just want to hope and pray that everybody gets a clean break. Every horse has a safe trip, and everybody gets to ho- come home clean. Let the chips fall where they may." <laughs> That's all we can say on this deal. That's actually not true. That was not all that we can say. There's a lot more to say. (laughs) Uh, So now here's what he said after the race. California Chrome came in fourth, losing to a bunch of horses that hadn't run in the first two legs of the Triple Crown. So if you had your way, you would say you've got to run the Triple Crown or you cannot come up in the Belmont and be a fresh horse. That's right. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. Because this is not fair to these horses that have been running their guts out for these people and for the people that believe in them. For have somebody to come up like, this is a coward's way out, in my opinion. This is a coward's way out. So you think they came right after your horse and that was the plan, just like they have other potential triple crowns? Exactly. Our horse had a target on his back. Everybody else lays out one. Or they won't run in the Kentucky Derby or the Preakness. They'll wait until the Belmont. You know what? If you've got a horse, run him in all three. All right. We cut off the clip right before Coburn's wife, Carolyn, starts poking him <laughs> and telling him to shut up, which was probably good advice. Was she using a whip? She was <laughs> She was using one of those buzzers, those electric buzzers. To uh, be fair, he was hopped up on Lasix. Uh, he just kept talking, Lasix or otherwise, saying the next day. He just continued the next day all through the night. Uh, His mouth runs with blinders. <laughs> <laughs> he said that holding horses, Stefan, he said, he said this, that holding horses out of the two first Triple Crown races was like me at 6'2", playing basketball with a kid in a wheelchair. He seemed very enamored with that analogy. He used he it, it several times. times. Yes. Yeah. I, I he went, thought about it. He said it. And then after considering it, said it repeatedly. And after other people heard him say it and probably <laughs> said, you probably shouldn't say that, he said it some more. All right, Stefan. I think it was SB Nation, but one of the sites putting this in context said, other than being wildly offensive, this seems to add no useful perspective on what goes on. <laughs> Stefan, take us home here. Um, I think what happened here is that everybody bought the bullshit narrative that evolved over the last month. Horseshit, please. Thank you. Everybody bought the horseshit narrative that evolved over the last month about this horse and about horse racing and the Triple Crown more specifically. America's horse, he's changing lives, we're approaching this with simple values, we're going up against the establishment. He only bought the horse for like 10,000 bucks or something? 8,000 and then 2,000 more, yeah, 10,000 bucks. But I think as with most straight-talking, cantankerous, good quotey media, folksy (laughs) types... Just turns out it turns out that this is just like a not very smart, grumpy old guy whose plain spokenness was a mask for what ultimately turned out to be profound bitterness. I think that statement is going to really hurt your presidential bid, Stefan. Which part of it? The part that you think that all people who engage in straight talk are angry old people. I just I won't be able <laughs> to name my my presidential van bus, the Straight Talk Express. Taken. Clearly, you will not be able to to use that name. But uh, with regard to this Coburn guy, this America's horse thing, you uh, you seem to have bought into that a little bit, the America's horse. Is anybody in America going around saying that this horse, like, stands in for them? And represents yeah, Mike Lupica is. How, how, far, <laughs> how far does your head need to be up Seabiscuit's ass <laughs> to think that this story has any relevance to anything that's happening with any, like, working class lunch pail type person anyone why does it have to be working class lunch pail this was this is a pan but nobody cares right nobody cares i mean people watch rural small town values (laughs) it's like any reflexively dumb thing people say throw it in with the california bucket also the children yes and the trip is good for the children and the trip the the he was running for the truth people watched this race 20 million people watched which was the most uh at the Belmont in many, many years because they want to see something that hasn't happened in 36 years. And any time that a reasonably popular sporting event and there's a chance for something historic to happen, people will tune in. Sure. But it's not because they believe that this, you know, equine 
individual, equine athlete. What do we call them? Equine athlete. Qu- quadru- uh, quadrupedonist repre- American? Represented anything beyond the fact that it like ran in, in most of a circle. Well, I, <laughs> kind I of resent, fast. I resent that. I was bought for an oval? eight thousand dollars an and then two thousand dollars. It is it is of avocular. Uh, I was bought at ten thousand dollars at auction, and when I was a yearling, I said to myself, one day, I want to be owned by two cantankerous dudes. One who hasn't fully shaved his goatee while while on national television. He, he had this. The other, the co-owner had weird stubble. Among the other stupid things, <laughs> and then you have this whole idea. So. That America's behind the horse, and this is said by the people who are announcing the race. To be fair, the Belmont gets seven hours of race time on NBC. They got to say something. I don't know how you would try to do this without making the grandiose claims of uh, horsosity, but they don't try it. I think Bob Costas toes the line a little more than the rest of them every once in a while making a joke. But yeah, so the two things going on is to inflate how important this is to America, and then when it doesn't go off, to talk about the sorry state of horse racing. And horse racing is not in a sorry state because they made a number of missteps, and when you're dealing with horses, it will naturally be twice as many missteps as when dealing with people. But it's not because, it's just because of things like our tastes have changed. It's a sport based on gambling and, you know, waiting 30 minutes between races is just not an efficient way for gamblers to get their excitement fixed. We've gone from an agricultural society where with a lot of contact with live animals to an industrial society, just like times have conspired against horse racing. And as a result, it's on a little bit of a downward slope. And so we look to the Triple Crown. Bit. Yeah, and but we look to the Triple Crown as if it's going to save and re- restore everything, and it's definitely not. And then we get tweets like Darren Ravel saying that, you know, they sold out of California chrome t-shirts. This is indicative of what's wrong with the sport of horse racing. How indicative could it be? How often do they have horse racing t-shirts when the Triple <laughs> Crown is on the line? I would say it's totally atypical. I don't think if, he, if it even won the Triple Crown that it would restore horse racing. And then I guess the bigger issue that Coburn raises, is it so impossible? I think it's really, really hard for a lot of reasons. But is it so impossible to win the Triple Crown now, given how horses are bred? Or have we just you know, seen an 0 for 13 streak that is mostly explained by how hard it is, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. We've seen an 0 for 36 streak, and I think a lot of it does have to do with breeding and the durability of these horses, and a lot of it does have to do with the thing Coburn was complaining about, that to ask a horse, a modern horse, to run three times in five weeks and win. run three times in five weeks. Did you just ask the modern horse, Josh? (laughs) I did. What did he say? He said, Josh, I'll think about it. (laughs) <laughs> Let me get back he's to like, you. He's like, oh, wood, but orange is a new black just dropped <laughs> you know, on Netflix. As the owner, I am the modern horse. <laughs> we have not mentioned the, the name of the horse that won the race, which was Tonalist, and yeah, whose right. owner has been in right. horse racing Boring. for many, many years, <laughs> whose father owned a horse that was thwarted in similar fashion by a fresh horse at yes, Belmont. This, this is happens, part of horse right. racing. It always happens. The idea is that the Triple Crown is hard, and maybe it is harder because of how horses are bred now and because of how owners strategize their involvement in the Triple Crown races. But that's the point, isn't it? Yeah. Like it's supposed what's wrong to be with that? hard. I and like what's wrong with that? that exactly. And frankly, when we all the, the, the baloney about how a Triple Crown winner will somehow revive horse racing, you can't get more attention on horse racing <laughs> than having a horse win the first two legs of the Triple Crown and then lose and then have another horse do it the following year. But what would even be the mechanism by which horse racing would be revived? It would. Would they order another box of the T-shirts and that would, more t-shirts. That would somehow revive it? I just don't even understand... There, there's not really a de Bla- pathway. De Blasio here. would be forced to replace carriage horses with thoroughbreds <laughs> once around the park in four minutes. 30 I mean, the seconds. irony here is. I mean, I th- the irony here is that I think people that are in horse racing, and I was reading the Daily Racing Forum a bit last week to try to understand what Look was going you. on here. I know, right? Uh, well, I had to talk about it on NPR, so I had to. Oh uh, well, you yeah. would certainly have to prepare for NPR. Not yes, for this you'd thing, have to. Exactly. You'd have to certainly look at uh, right. uh, a, a publication rooted in the 1890s. Yes, yes. yes. Um, and there's nobody in horse racing that actually believes that a triple crown winner will somehow miraculously make the handle in at tracks go back up four billion dollars the amount that they've lost does. over the last decade <laughs> coburn thinks it'll get those kids out of the wheelchair too he's still talking <laughs> hold on hold on yeah he's still he's still going 
<laughs> but this California Chrome uh, horse, it wasn't that great of a horse, was it? Historically, the Derby time was not that fast. And I think that given the challenges of the Triple Crown, the fact that the races are so close together, which, um, you know, the modern horse watching Oranges, the New Black, as it does, is not trained to do. It has to be an all-time historically great horse to accomplish that feat. And shouldn't that be the horse that would heal America? Would, That's would, the horse to unite us. That would. Our fetlocks would be just people's horse. stronger than ever before. And the point we didn't get to is that it's very possible that what happened here on Saturday is that the jockey ran a bad race. Well, you know, they were, Andrew, they were Andrew Beyer in the post on Monday morning. You can't go out that wide, Stefan. No, you can't get stuck behind oh, other horses. Oh, he got horses. stuck. He got stuck okay. in traffic behind other horses. He should have gone to the front right at the beginning. And they made some excuses after he may have kicked himself. Could have, should have. Could have, should have. Yeah, but the thing, he kicked the his thing right is, and foot against his right foot, which humans can't do. Could have, should have. In a race that takes two and a half minutes, they spent, you know, at least a half hour dissecting the ride. And every ride could be dissected like this. It's so, I mean, the jockeys in Except the jockeys Belmont, do have a lot more control, Mike, than you're allowing. I mean, they do manage the horses. They do I push saw them no, in directions. But the whole reason that I was saying, even though this horse is a three to five favorite, and I went on a bunch of shows and said, I just don't believe he's going to win it because the last 12 haven't for similar reasons that are going to affect him, which are they're not bred for speed and they get tired over the long distance. I saw no evidence that he wasn't relatively tired over the long distance. And in fact, I thought he had a pretty decent ride. I, you know, I know he doesn't like to come from a few lengths back, but it does seem that if we applied this kind of scrutiny to any of the 13 races a day at Belmont, we could pick apart a lot of rides. I mean, jockeys ride five races a day, even when they're riding in the Belmont Stakes. You know, it happens, you do what you can, and then if it doesn't, uh, if you don't get a good ride, mostly it's because the horse is going or the horse is not going. That horse didn't go. I do like, though, as the quote to uh, put Coburn in context, the trainer, the 77-year-old trainer, and you could just hear the horse sense exuding. He said, well, he's a young owner and he's never had any bad luck before. I love that. Almost six years ago, Delonte West told the press that he was suffering from a mood disorder, one that he later described as bipolar disorder. As David Haglin writes in his profile of West for Slate, West's decision to speak openly about his inner turmoil took a lot of courage. But anyone who goes public with his psychological struggles, especially in the sports world where open and honest discussions of mental health issues are still rare, has to worry that people will judge him, laugh at him, and treat him differently. All three of those things happened to Delonte West. The 30-year-old West has been out of the NBA for two years now. As Hagland acknowledges in his piece, West's story is not a simple one. Jobs in the NBA are hard to come by, and West hasn't been the lowest maintenance player in the history of the league. But at the same time, it does seem like negative and at times unfair media coverage have affected his ability to get a spot in the NBA. Joining us now is our colleague David Hagland, who wrote about Delonte West on Slate last week. Hello, David. Hey, Josh. Um, let's start by talking about the two things that people know about Delonte West, maybe if they don't follow the NBA. So in 2008, he was uh, diagnosed with a mood disorder. He told the world about it. He was public about it. Then the following year, he was arrested after he was found carrying guns while riding a motorcycle. And he became the subject of a rumor that he was sleeping with LeBron James's mom. So how do you think the reports about West's mental health, the earlier um, you know, mood disorder diagnosis, how did that affect how these two other events or supposed events uh, were talked about and were reported on? Well, they affected them pretty directly. With the uh, arrest, the, some of the very first reports noted that, you know, they said last year Delonte West uh, revealed that he was suffering from a mood disorder. And, you know, that it was implied uh, in and in the straight news pieces, I should say, it was implied that, OK, perhaps that explains this strange event. Uh, then, of course, you know, on the web, people take that and run with it, and everyone assumes that he's done something crazy. There's a piece that I, I link to where he's described as a disturbed person. Um, this uh, this writer just jumps to all kinds of conclusions. With the rumor, it's a little bit um, uh, less obvious, but still, I think, clear. Uh, there are pieces like, for instance, the one that I mentioned by Matt Taibbi in Rolling Stone, where he says that he had believed the rumor because he would believe any story involving Delonte West. He, uh, this was in a piece that uh, was called Freaks of the Game, the Good, the Bad, and the Insane. Uh, you know, there was this image that he was crazy and that therefore he would do anything. 
and uh, you know people interpreted basically everything he did after that uh, through that lens. What made you say before anyone else said? I didn't, I just had not detected a big groundswell of why isn't Delonte West in the game. So what made you say either what your question was why isn't Delonte West in the NBA or Maybe your question was, what's the deal with, what's the real deal with Delonte West? Well, I've been a fan of his for a while. So, you know, I noticed when he was cut by the Mavericks, he's obviously had difficulties at a couple of the uh, spots he's gone to. So as soon as that happened, it occurred to me, this might be the end for him. And the reporting uh, out of Dallas, you know, there were a couple of preseason suspensions before he got cut. Uh, but the reporting was fairly vague, and so it was hard to tell what had happened. And it made me wonder, okay, what's the real story here? And as, to be honest, I, I'm still frustrated by the fact that I have a hard time. I had a hard time finding out exactly what went on in Dallas. But it did cross my mind that this was a possibility, that, to, that the team just decided, you know what, the, the, he's too much to handle. And at that point, I should say, as far as I knew, he still thought of himself as someone who suffered from bipolar disorder. As I learned in reporting the piece, he now thinks that uh, diagnosis was mistaken. I just want to go back, but it does seem to me like Royce White, and we have talked about him, sometimes guys have advocates in the media and people will say, hey, don't dr- jump to this conclusion. But it does seem to me that Delonte West is more adrift in terms of having an advocate before you started actually writing the piece. And I'm not saying it was advocacy, but at least it gave you context and something other than crazy dude who drives around on a motorcycle with shotguns. Am I right? Were there people who really got him at all before you started writing about him? He has fans, certainly. I mean, uh, he's one of those guys who he's very funny. He's very I think he's very smart. He's very he's very quick. Uh, in conversation, and so he had he had fans, but it was sort of more on the fringe. I mean, I think um, uh, you know Bethlehem Shoals, a free Darko, I think wrote a post about him at some point. There were th- there's a guy named Sam Riches who wrote a piece uh, on the classical, which was actually after I'd already started working on this. This piece took me so long to write, so there were a few. But you know, he's not a star, and you know, Royce White is a guy who was drafted, I believe, 16th or 17th. Uh, everyone said he would have gone higher if it weren't for these issues. Delonte went 24th, yeah, yeah, and yeah. nobody really knew that much about him when he came into the league. And Royce White had a great college career, and Delonte was, you know, the second best player on his uh, St. Joe's team. So, yeah, it's a little different. Yeah, in a lot of ways, he's an overachiever. When you think yeah. about guys drafted 24th, he actually had more of a career than a lot of those guys do. Yeah, Sport, Sports give people the, uh, the belief that they can interpret athletes' mental health issues and how they should be treated. You mentioned Luther Wright from the NBA, Jason Caffey. Joey Votto, Major League Baseball, more recently even someone like Landon Donovan, who took a hiatus saying that I needed a mental break from the game. But the public, you know, for for all of the progress that has been made, and there has been some progress, you you talk about Major League Baseball's uh, employee assistance policies, and you talk about some of the right things that happened with Royce White, though there were a lot of missteps there. Is there a larger failing here on the part of the media and fans and organizations and leagues? I mean, what does Delonte West's case tell us? Yeah, you know, honestly, I think that the the largest failing for me as I worked on the piece was in the media, because you know the league is in a is in a tricky spot in a lot of ways, uh, and I do think that there's more that they could do. They haven't figured this out yet, but Delonte himself says he was pretty well served by the teams that he played for. He he got a lot of help. Um, you know, generally he was referred to people. It wasn't like there was necessarily somebody on staff, but in a couple of occasions there was somebody the team employed. Uh, he had good relationships with psychologists and psychiatrists. Uh, but I was struck over and over again how even uh, writers who were trying to be sensitive, once a diagnosis enters the picture, it, it I, I, too many writers, I think, don't know exactly what to do. They just don't know, okay, how do I handle this? I guess, you know, I, I refer to this disorder because maybe that explains it. Um, and then that becomes this kind of shorthand explanation and things that really have nothing to do with each other get, get connected. And then, of course, there are many people who are much less sensitive, you know, including places like, you know, the Daily Beast, which is a, you know, respectable publication. Ish. And, <laughs> respectable. <laughs> no, I'm going to leave the, that uh, ish with you, Mike. But, uh, they, you know, they ran this, you know, piece, the seven craziest, you know, meta world peace moments, which links the time he thanked his psychologist after winning the championship to the time he went into the stands. At Auburn Hills, these things have have nothing to do with each other, and and you know you want to call the fight crazy. Sure, of course that was a crazy moment, but we're now calling it crazy when he thanks a psychologist. I mean, there's just so much uh, misunderstanding and insensitivity on this issue. I, I think th- still, I think that justifies my ish. So, 
If you look at the comments for um, your story, which I've had an interest in seeing how people respond on the web, it's been um, it's gotten a really strong response on Slate and elsewhere. And if you look on message boards, a lot of people are saying, I've always been a fan of his. I'm glad to read this. And then comment number two is he banged LeBron's mom. Um, this seems to like follow him around forever. And it really has affected Delonte. He told you that he could not just he cannot believe the casual cruelty of people mentioning to him to this on the street, people on the web, I'm sure, more so. And it's a symptom of the fact that we don't see athletes as people, especially athletes like Delonte West, who get this reputation for being larger than life, for being crazy, for being wacky. Um, and that seems to be something that's generalizable across all of sports and even all of celebrity, that we don't think that there's an actual human being who's affected by stuff we're saying online or even when we see them in person. Yeah, there's a larger failing of empathy. And there are times in working on the piece when I felt like it was tilting at windmills. I mean, to some extent, people are going to be cruel and insensitive forever. It's just the way that we are. Um, but I do think if people stopped and thought for a second about the fact that this is a real person, I mean, if you, if anyone who doesn't believe that these jokes uh, still happen constantly, just type his name into Twitter. I mean, they're, they're just, there's a stream of them. And, and he's been living with this, you know, for, you know, four years now. And, uh, and it really, I think it has taken a toll. And, and to be clear you, that everybody who was close to him or on the team told you that there's absolutely no basis in fact, for this rumor that he slept with LeBron's mom, that it just kind of took off, took a life of its own, and was kind of a stupid explanation for why the Cavs lost that playoff series in LeBron's final year. Yeah, and as you mentioned, uh, Josh, and and this didn't make it into the piece, but there have been a couple of other totally unsubstantiated rumors about LeBron James's sex life. When you're that big a star, uh, people just throw these things at you. And if you're someone like Delonte who happens to be in that circle and you're an easy target for other reasons, you know, there's a chance that it hits you. But I, yeah, I talked to a, a several people, people who worked for the team at the time, people who were on the team, people who covered the team. Uh, there just doesn't seem to be any evidence at all. And if you look at the, the emails that first got this going, they're incredibly suspicious. They, there's a lot of copying and pasting going on. The, the sources are, are all over the place. Uh, so I don't think there is really any basis for it at all. But it did. it, it took off and it's an interesting case study, too, in the way this happens, because once a few guys in the league, you know, heard about it and thought, oh, wait, maybe this is true, then the people who are, you know, one step further away, a guy like Bill Simmons, who is not, uh, you know, averse to kind of Being a indulging fan. in rumor and innuendo from time to time, he implies that, oh, you know, hey, I think this is true. And then that just the people who listen to him figure, well, he must know because he's a quasi-insider, and then it just, you know, takes root, and, and people don't doubt it. The word you used before, empathy, that was the word that occurred to me during the whole piece, because there seemed to be, when you look at the mental illness and the diagnosis, we want there to be a really strong diagnosis, and then it could be a pretty black and white issue. If he was mentally ill, and if all of his actions flow from the fact that he was mentally ill, then, you know, maybe they explain the actions, maybe you can treat the mental illness, but Mental illness is not that black and white. Delante says, you know, he wasn't bipolar. There's some really good evidence that what we think of as bipolar being on two extremes, maybe that's not even true. Maybe people really just go up and then middle, or then they're kind of depressive, or at times they're depressive. And, you know, at the time that he got his diagnosis, as you point out, he had just married his high school or college sweetheart. Mm -hmm. High school or college, I forget. College. College sweetheart, and then divorced her. I mean, there were things that would make a person blue. So we want, it would be great if this story were be sensitive to the mentally ill, but it's not that clear a story. And even the diagnosis itself of bipolar, I mean, this is something that the DSM-6 might have a different definition than the DSM-5. But if we put all that aside, and if we were just more empathetic to the plight of this guy or the situation of this guy, if we just weren't, if you just take away some of the nastiest things that not random people on Twitter, but, you know, big name uh, reporters should have said, if maybe during his playing time, someone who was, you know, a beat reporter on one of his teams did a version of your story. I do think there's a good chance that this guy who could really contribute to an NBA team and delight fans in the process, he's a very fun guy to watch, would be in the NBA. And I think it really just rests on a little bit of empathy. 
Yeah, I mean, as I worked on the piece, I came to feel like we'd all be better off if we talked about mental health as it applied to all of us instead of singling people out in the way that we often do. Yes, there are people who have um, clear, diagnosable mental illnesses, but I noticed a, a tendency uh, even on the part of people who are you know, sort of quasi-mental health advocates, not necessarily people who know a great deal about the subject but who have taken an interest, maybe sports writers who have written about it. There's a way that people sometimes present the subject as if we understand it better than we do. Yeah, and they, you want you want it to be something like cancer or, you know, Jerry's kids or, hey, if we give it money, we'll battle mental illness. And Delante even said, I kind of embraced the diagnosis so I could have a charity that would give money towards it. You're right. It is really this gray area. And that undid him as much as insensitivity towards mental illness. The fact that mental illness is so gray in and of itself. Yeah. And I I wish I should say I sympathize with that impulse on the part of writers and others because they want people to take it more seriously than they do. And I think people are afraid sometimes that if you acknowledge that, you know, we don't, we still don't really understand these things as well as we need to, then you potentially undermine the faith of other people in psychiatry and psychology. People wave it away and say all of this stuff is made up because we don't really understand it uh, in such black and white terms. Yeah, we can root for empathy from writers and fans, but ultimately the responsible parties here are teams and teams and their medical staffs. And you quote David McDuff from, from who's worked with the Ravens and, and other teams in professional sports. But it's ultimately, it's, it's teams making these decisions. Royce White did get another chance after the Rockets, after his, his, uh, his run-ins with the Rockets over the terms of how he would be treated and how he would uh, travel to games. Jason Collins gets signed. Michael Sam gets drafted. It's, it's incumbent on teams to make these decisions and create environments that are healthy for athletes and for teams to come out and openly say this is important and we should not minimize athletes' mental health. Um, look at what happened with the Miami Dolphins last year and Jonathan Martin. You know, did the team fail the player here? Absolutely. Did the team seem unaware that Jonathan Martin was suffering from depression and was concerned about his health and his own safety on this team? Absolutely. So did you get the sense in reporting this out, David, that there was growing empathy on the people that could be responsible for someone like Delonte West having another chance to play in the NBA? Or ultimately, as you write at the end of the piece, is it just that, you know, he might not get another chance because he's perceived as too problematic and older and maybe not worth maybe not worth the effort? Well, there, so there are two parts of, uh, of that. Uh, specifically with regard to Delonte, I think that you know, we always have more empathy for those we know well. And so for him to get another chance, I think it's going to come down to the people who do know him. And I, and I should say that people I talk to who know him, they all really like him. Uh, and, you know, Danny Ainge told me that if the Celtics were a contending team this year, he would have considered signing him. He considered signing him, you know, the last time the Celtics were contending and needed a guard. And there's a, a report that I haven't yet confirmed that the Clippers uh, may bring him to summer league. Obviously, that's where Doc Rivers is, who knows him well. So I do think the people who know him are the ones who are most likely to to give him another chance. In terms of the larger issue of whether teams are making progress, uh, my general sense is that they are, although it's happening fairly slowly, that there's a line from uh, Chris Carr, who's a sports psychologist who works with the Pacers, who's been in the field for 20 years, and he referred at one point to the pace of change as glacial. Um, But he did say it's getting better, you know, much more slowly than he hoped, but it's getting better. And honestly, I think that for it to continue to change, for that uh, pace to increase, I think it's going to come down to teams deciding it's in their best interest, which is a point that uh, David Stern made when I talked to him, that basically, you know, they spend millions on these guys. And the profession that they have chosen is an incredibly stressful one. I think people have this idea that athletes are so mentally tough that they're less likely to suffer from these problems than other people. But the field that they've gone into just takes such a toll in so many different ways. And I think teams are going to have to decide, and some of them already have, that our players would perform better if we were attending to these issues for all of them in as comprehensive a way as we can. And if teams were more open about it, the public would have a better understanding of just how physically, mentally, emotionally difficult it is to be a professional athlete. Yeah, and then I think the stigma lessens. I think if if people start thinking of things like depression and anxiety as as the sort of thing that everyone is susceptible to, some people are more susceptible than others, you know, then then when a player misses time because of uh, you know an issue like that, 
then they don't seem strange or unusual. Uh, thank you very much, David. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, uh, for Slate Plus members, there are a bunch of extras. There's an interview that I did with you about the writing process. You also wrote a short piece about how you managed to get Delante uh, to agree to do a story with you. And uh, for the people that want to listen to David read the story, you can do that too if you're on Slate Plus. He's got uh, a nice voice. He does have a nice voice. <laughs> I've enjoyed listening to it uh, for, for the past 15 minutes. David, congrats on the uh, great story, and uh, thanks for being with us. Thanks, guys. David Hagland is the editor of Slate's culture blog, Browbeat, and he wrote a profile of Delante West that was featured on the site last week. All right, it's now time for After Balls. There's an article in the San Antonio Express News the other day noting that Spurs coach Greg Popovich had done uh, something special prior to the NBA Finals. It was not that he called ESPN's Doris Burke at home, said the word turnovers, and just hung up. Uh, what he did was, uh, <laughs> Stefan's smiling a little bit. He liked that. Yeah. Uh, so, nice. so the Spurs guard, Patty Mills, is from Australia. He is, in fact, an indigenous Australian. And on account of that fact, Popovich gathered his team in the locker room and told them that June 3rd was Eddie Mabo Day, a day that commemorates the man who fought for indigenous Australians to get the land rights that had long been denied to them. Uh, June 3rd is the anniversary of the 1992 ruling that native Australians did have a claim on land. And I'm imagining Popovich diagramming all of this on a blackboard. Uh, Mills was apparently very touched by the gesture, and we will now honor Eddie Mabo in our trademark fashion. Uh, Mike Pesca, what is your Mabo? All right, I'm going to take you to the World Cup, and I'm going to take you through the groups and judge them by flags, by flags. No, a vexillology! Lot of people, that's right, a little vexillology corner here on Hang Up and Listen. Now, a lot of uh, people will have conspiracies about who can't be in what group, and it's not only conspiracies. They put the top, the pots. They put the top teams apart from each other, and then they have, try to have some geographic diversity. But it seems to me way too coincidental, but they have flag diversity. For instance, every group has a red, white, and blue striped flag, except one, but no group has two red, white, and blue striped flags. Now, these these flags sometimes can have other features, like Group A is the Croatian flag, and Group B is the Netherlands flag, and Group D, see, so doesn't have a red, white, and blue one, Croatia's in D, and France is in E, and I guess F doesn't have one either, but then you got the old USA. You have flags that are extremely similar are also always in different groups. Did you know the Ecuadorian flag is the identical flag is the Colombian flag, but for the Ecuadorian coat of arms. Although, when Ecuador has a merchant marine flag that is, in fact, the exact same as the Colombian flag, luckily, the Colombian merchant marine flag has the Colombian coat of arms, so there should be no confusion there. The Ecuadorian coat of arms, I didn't really get too into it before now, but man, it's got a lot of features. It's got, I'll just mention a couple of the things. The bird atop the flag is a condor, and there is a steamship the first steamship built in the Americas in 1841 on the flag. Another flag with a bird on it, Mexico. That is uh, famously the bird with the rattlesnake in the mouth, standing on a prickly pear cactus on an island. They're just this, it's just a kind of a Mexican nesting doll of symbols. This on that, with this in the mouth, and that on the thing. All the flags with a cross on it are also in different groups. You've got the flag of England. You've got the Swiss flag. You've got the Greek flag. All in different groups. Opa. The Yes. The very interesting, though I, t I tend to disagree with it, website, The World's Flags Given Letter Grades, written by a guy <laughs> named Josh Parsons. Uh, the actual title is way too long, but that is it. The World's Flags Given Letter Grades. The failing grade flags were given to, and I totally disagree with it. He doesn't like things that are too busy, but I really like some horrible flags. Like, I love Kiribati. He gives it a 41 out of 100 for graven images and too busy, but they're not in the World Cup. Kiribati. He failed Iran. He failed uh, Portugal. And he fails Brazil. So that seems to be insane, but they're all, the failing flags are all in different groups. The and world's then, flag grading websites given letter grades, F. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I give them. Then I think what is just absolutely one of the worst flags in the world is representing the only country that is playing in the World Cup for the first time. Do you know it, Stefan? What, what country is making its World Cup debut this time? Bosnia and Herzegovina. Yes, and they just have an awful flag. Somehow it escapes with a C grade on the world's 
on the world's flags given letter grades, as does the United States. It's given a higher grade than the United States flag. This looks like a corporate branding effort gone wrong or possibly a city that's on the outskirts of Pocatello, Idaho. It has a terrible, terrible flag. I hope the uh, Bosnian-Herzegovian team gets at least one win to make up for the atrocity that is its blue and yellow flag with a bunch of diagonal stars. Stefan, what's your mabo? The World Cup is in Brazil, of course. The city of Belo Horizonte is hosting games. So that means you are going to be reading about the 1950 America team that beat England one to nothing in one of the greatest upsets ever. You probably won't hear much, however, about the United States in another World Cup in South America, the first one in 1930 in Uruguay. 13 teams entered. Any member of the young FIFA could play. Seven from South America, Mexico and the United States, and just four European countries, France, Belgium, Yugoslavia, and Romania. No one else wanted to make the boat trip. The common perception is that the United States has always been terrible at soccer, and there's some truth in that. Soccer's place in U.S. society was pretty much established in the early 20th century when gridiron football became the sport of colleges, while soccer was relegated to factories and inner cities. But there was a window in the 1910s and 20s when it looked like the game might work. There were dozens of ethnic and factory teams. Starting in 1921, there was a pro league, the American Soccer League, that attracted fans and press coverage. One soccer historian has called it one of the best leagues in the world at the time. It was from teams in that league, like the Providence Gold Bugs and the Ben Millers, who were sponsored by the Ben W. Miller Hat Company of St. Louis and Holly Carburetor of Detroit, that the 1930 World Cup team was formed. The U.S. team included 10 players born in America, five in Scotland, one in England, though all of the immigrants had arrived years earlier. Only one had played professionally in England and only for two games in the third division. The U.S. team worked out a lot on the boat ride down to Montevideo. They beat Belgium 3 to nothing and Paraguay 3 to nothing, and thanks to their size relative to everyone else. They were dubbed the shot putters. In the semifinals, the shot putters lost two players to injuries. There were no subs in soccer then, and they were trounced by Argentina six to one. They had to play two men down. They did. Yeah. That's really unfair. I think they ended up playing one man down and the other guy just sort of gutted it out. Steve Coburn is really the anti not happy about that soccer in the 1930s. After reading about this guy last night, I've come to love the U.S. coach, Bob Millar, M-I-L-L-A-R, could be Miller, and the peripatetic mercenary life of the pro soccer player in the early 20th century. Millar was a Scotsman who landed in the United States in 1911. He never played for the same team more than three years at a time. He played for Diston Sawworks in Philly, Brooklyn Field Club, Bethlehem Steel, Babcock and Wilcox, New York Clan McDonald, Philadelphia Hibernian, Robbins Dry Dock, J&P Coates, Tebow Yacht Basin. Tebow. Tebow. Fall River Marksman, so named because the team owner's last name was Mark, so they were Mark's men. The New York Field Club, the New York Giants, Indiana Flooring, there were even a couple more. Playing for Brooklyn against Diston in 1914, Millar famously got into a fight with a Diston fan during the game, which triggered a brawl among players and fans. The game was covered by the New York Times, which reported that the incident was due to some exchange of persiflage between the Brooklyn's inside left, that was Miller, and an excited partisan of Diston who lost his temper and jumped the ropes and attempted to strike Miller. Persiflage, frivolous bantering talk, light raillery, as Merriam-Webster defines it, or what today we would call trash talk. Anyway, after the U.S. semifinals run in 1930, the Depression came. Players and fans alike lost their jobs. These factory teams folded. The American Soccer League went bust. And soccer in America, which couldn't fall back on the college game because there wasn't much of a college game, was marginalized even further. The U.S. did play in the 1934 World Cup, losing its only match to Italy 7-1. to no indication of whether the game was marred by persiflage. Josh, what's your mabo? This week, I have a story about tennis, boxing, and football. With the French Open over and done with, Wimbledon is just two weeks away. It's hard to think of a bigger upset in Wimbledon history than one from 20 years ago. From 1991 to 1996, Steffi Graf won the tournament five out of six times. And between 93 and 96, she won 10 of the 14 Grand Slam tournaments she entered. But at the All England Club in 1994, the German fell to 30-year-old American Lori McNeil in straight sets, becoming the first defending Wimbledon women's champion ever to lose in the first round. McNeil, who grew up playing on public courts in Houston and was childhood friends with fellow African-American tennis star Zena Garrison, 
was considered an underachiever during her career, but she was always a great grass court player. She smartly avoided Graf's forehand in that 94 match, and she also benefited from slick, rainy conditions on center court, which helped her sharp volleys skid for winners. As our friend Scott Price wrote in Sports Illustrated, she also drew strength from the presence of her friend, actress Robin Givens, who also happened to be Mike Tyson's ex-wife. According to Givens, Tyson had told McNeil before one match in Newport that she was too nice and that she needed to be a killer. When she won the tournament, Tyson sent her a thousand roses. Givens also told Price that Tyson once hit McNeil and that, quote, that's when she really became part of the Givens family. What a touching, touching story. Touching story. Givens was in England to support McNeil because the tennis player had suffered a personal tragedy six months prior, the suicide of her father, Charlie, who shot himself when Laurie was in Australia to prepare for the Aussie Open. Charlie McNeil was a pro athlete himself, a defensive back for the Los Angeles and San Diego Chargers in the 1960s, making the all-AFL team in 1961. I asked Chargers Hall of Famer Ron Mix, who I interviewed for the Jewish Jocks, anthology. I called up Mr. Mix. I asked him about his old teammate, and he told me that Charlie was a delightful guy to be around, that he had a great work ethic, and that he even, strangely, seemed to enjoy practice. Mix says that Charlie was probably the nastiest safety in football, known for his hard hits. In Price's SI story, he explains that Charlie left the game after his knees gave out, that he went from football to a job in real estate to another in offshore oil to driving a cab. McNeil also lapsed into depression. Price quotes McNeil's wife, Dorothea, saying, something happened in this life, and he just started to withdraw. If this happened today, a football player known for hard hits becomes depressed and shoots himself, then we'd speculate that football had damaged his brain and that he was suffering from chronic traumatic encephalopathy. But this was 20 years ago, and none of the stories that I found about Charlie McNeil's death connected it at all to his football career. Laurie McNeil is now the director of tennis for her friend Zena Garrison's Academy in Houston. At Wimbledon in 1994, she advanced to the semis. She played every match while wearing half of a heart-shaped pendant around her neck. Laurie's half said dad and had her father's number, 27. Charlie McNeil was buried with the other half of the heart. It read, I love you, dad, Laurie. We love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. When you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Hang Up and Listen. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Volo. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.